Welcome to Sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Good morning, church. Our scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 31. The Pharisees who loved the money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was distressed in purple, who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross from here to us. He answered, "Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Shervon, for that scripture reading. Uh, That was awesome. Uh, Good morning. My name is Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance, and I just want to welcome you again to our online worship experience, this church at home in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. A welcome especially to you if you're just checking out church. If you're not familiar with Christianity and what we believe, we're so glad you're tuning in this morning and want you to know you're welcome here. My first and only motorcycle was a 1985 Honda Nighthawk. It was a cool bike. 
a nice dark burgundy red with uh, red highlights stripped on the side. One night I was driving my bike down Shepherd Avenue here in Toronto and I was coming down the street and a car was looking to turn left onto Shepherd and it, it didn't see me, obviously, and it cut right in front of me. And I was on a collision course uh, to make a T-bone with this car. I, I managed to slam on my brakes and do a little fishtail and um, managed to just clip the back of the car. And I came out of that experience with nothing more than a sprained ankle. The fact that this happened right across the street from a funeral home, the irony is not lost on me. Suffice it to say, this experience changed my attitude towards owning a motorcycle. You see, there is a certain perspective that death brings to life. Whether it's a near-death experience that you've had in your life or someone close to you who dies, or a pandemic that puts the question and reality of death in front of us like never before. There is a perspective that death brings to life. And that's what Jesus is doing as he tells, Andrew, I'm getting a lot of, it's like popping. Am I positioned wrong? Further away. I can, I can restart. There is a death, a death that perspective brings to life. Cha, cha, pa, pa, poo, pa. That seems to be better. Are you, is it still good audio-wise? Tony, I'm going to go back and restart, okay? Yeah, I, it, was more, it was more just, I think that would show up, right? All the, yeah, so I just wanted to cut that out. All right, check one. It might be the joint, like the, the clip or the, the input. All right, here we go. Siobhan, thank you so much for that scripture reading. My name is Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at First Alliance Church. And again, welcome to Church at Home this morning. A special welcome to you as well. If you are just checking out Christianity and you, know, you might not call yourself a Christian, but you're just tuning in this morning and you're curious, we're so glad you're with us. We're going to be diving into the Bible right now. My first and only motorcycle was a 1985 Honda Nighthawk. It was a sweet bike, a dark burgundy red with light red pinstripe accents. One night I was driving down Shepherd Avenue here in Toronto, and it was the nighttime, so the, uh, there was a car that was wanting to turn left onto Shepherd and totally didn't see me. And I'm going about 50 kilometers per hour, obeying the speed limit. And this car comes out right in front of me. And in that moment, I was heading for a T-bone collision with this car. Now, thankfully, my reactions enabled me to slam on my brakes and do a bit of a fishtail, and I ended up clipping the back of his car. And I came out with nothing more than a sprained ankle. 
Now, the fact that this happened right across the street from a funeral home, the irony of that is not lost on me. Suffice it to say, this experience changed the way I thought towards owning a motorcycle. You see, there's a perspective that death brings to our lives. Whether it's a near-death experience you've had in your own life, whether it's the death of someone close to you, or whether it's a worldwide pandemic that puts the fact of death front and center for us, it has a way of changing our perspective. And that's what Jesus wants to do this morning in telling us a parable that places death and eternity before us. He wants to get us thinking about our life now because there is a perspective and a clarity that death brings to life. And that's what we're going to consider this morning as we continue to track with Jesus through our sermon series in Luke's gospel. And I invite you, if you have a Bible, please do have it open. We love to have the scriptures open so that we can reference and engage with the text ourselves. But I'm going to ask that you join me in a prayer. Living God, we thank you for this time, this moment in history where we can pause and hear from you in your word. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and show Christ to us. Would you illumine his words? Would you show us God the Father and would you lead us into the way of your kingdom? We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're considering the perspective that death brings to life this morning. And in a very specific way, Jesus is focusing on a certain aspect of life. Now in Luke chapter 16, he's dealing with the specific aspect of money and wealth. You see, what's been happening is Jesus has been in a a bit of a tussle with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, and he's actually been confronting their wrong attitude. So in Luke chapter 15, he confronts their wrong attitude with respect to poor and lost people and sinners. And he tells the story that we usually refer to as the parable of the prodigal son and other parables about lost things being found. Now in chapter 16, he takes on their attitude towards Money, death and money, two things we love to talk about all the time. No, they're not exactly our favorite topics. But we believe that every single word Jesus has to say to us is a good word. It's a word spoken from his goodness, and it's a word for our good. Kind of like medicine, you know, not all medicine tastes good. There's Buckley's, which tastes awful. And then there's that delicious banana medicine we used to drink as kids. But we can trust that the word that Jesus has to say to us this morning is a good word that we need to hear. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to consider first the parable and how the parable changes our attitude towards money. And then we're going to consider an action to put into practice. And then finally, the power that we need to do that. The parable, an action, and the power we need to put that action into practice. Let's look at the parable and see what it says to us. Look at verse 19. It says, there was a rich man. And actually both parables in this chapter begin that very same way. And this rich man was dressed in purple and fine linen. This was the best clothing and underwear available in his day. It says he lived in luxury every day. 
And the word luxury there actually means feasting. He feasted every day. He lived a, a, a nonstop weekend, just partying and feasting and indulging and drinking every single day. He's very similar to the man we've already seen in chapter 12. The man who had gotten a huge harvest of grain and built bigger barns and stored it up and he said to himself, self, take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. You see, this man is actually a picture of a lifestyle that we often wish we had ourselves. To be able to sit back, take it easy, to not have to work and toil, to have that endless weekend life. That's one man. The other man in the parable is a beggar. We've all seen him before, a formless pile of dirty blankets and rags. He's covered in sores. He's destitute and he's desperate and in need for any scrap of food that might be tossed to him, but he's ignored. The dogs are the only ones who seem to know that he exists. His name is Lazarus. Now his name is significant because his name means God is my help. And so what Jesus is setting up in this parable is a contrast between a man on the one hand who puts his trust in money and a man who has put his trust in God. They both die. And Lazarus is taken to Abraham's side. That means he's in the good place. His torment is over. He is comforted. The the rich man also dies. Death just is the great equalizer, isn't it? So the rich man dies and he's in Hades. That's the bad place. And, And he's separated and far away from God and God's people. And now he's in torment. And he cries out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And, and ironically, he asks that Lazarus would be permitted, whom he ignored for so many years, that Lazarus would be permitted to, to bring him a drop of water to ease his anguish. Now, the reversal of their situations and life and in death couldn't be more dramatic. And here's a gift to us this morning. We get to hear this teaching now in life before it's too late. I mean, part of the anguish of this parable is that this man gains a perspective in death when it's too late, but we get to hear this parable now before it's too late. And that is such a gracious word to us. It's this gracious wake-up call, kind of like how in my crash, I sprained my ankle. I got to walk away with my life and with a renewed perspective on how I would live differently. And as we hear this parable this morning, we get out with our lives, unlike the rich man. We get to wake up from the nightmare and live differently. Jesus sets the reality of death and eternity before us in this parable in such a clear way. So, how does this change our attitude towards money? How, how does this parable call us to live differently? First of all, it's that we need to start seeing money as a trust and not as a possession. 
A question that this parable raises for me as I was studying it was, was his money ever really his? Here he is on the other side of death and he's there, but his money isn't. He couldn't take it with him and it clearly didn't gain him any advantage in the afterlife. He is not the highest authority on his money. It was taken away from him. And he's not even the highest authority in his own life. God is. You see, the Christian perspective on wealth and even on all of life is this, that everything you have belongs to God. Even your life. And if that's true, if I am not my own and if everything that I have has been entrusted to me, then that means I don't get to decide what to do with it. It's not mine to do whatever I want with it. If it's true that I belong to God and my wealth belongs to God, then I really need to think through what God has entrusted it to me for. What has God entrusted his wealth to us for? He's entrusted us his wealth to bring glory to him. The reason for our whole lives is to bring glory to God. We were made for his glory, to to receive his glory, and to reflect his glory, and to glorify him. And now as Christians, as we follow Jesus, we need to have this clarity to discern and the willingness in our hearts to take our money, lay it at his feet, and submit our finances to God, to hold them before him. And to ask the questions that we don't often like to ask. Does this decision glorify God? Does this investment glorify God? Does this purchase bring glory to God? Our wealth has been entrusted to us for the glory of God. And this actually brings us to another side of that. If it's been entrusted us for the glory of God, it's also been entrusted to us for the rescue of God people, his image bearers, those he loves. Using wealth for the rescue of people is is a mere extension of using it for God's glory. Money is to be used for the rescue of people. That is so clear in this parable, right? The rich man isn't at fault because he hated Lazarus. He's not at fault because he was a horrible person and lived a terribly immoral life. He might have, but those details are not included. What is clear is that he ignored the need at his gate. He failed to rescue Lazarus. He didn't even see him. That's huge for us. So as Christians, as we live in the world, in the world of cutthroat capitalism and economics, we know that the world's predatory attitude towards money is wrong. Here's how it works. If you have money, that gives you more power. And you can exert your power to leverage a better deal, to make a profit, and in a sense, take advantage of those who are weaker than you. That's the most cutthroat expression of capitalist economics. Now, the Christian way of handling wealth isn't only about making us think about how we go about our, our, our affairs with our money is either engaging in exploitation and injustice 
We need to think clearly through that and we need to cut ties. We need to say, no, there's a better way. There's a fair way. There's a way that values human life and isn't about exerting my power to push someone else down. Yes, we know that, but it goes even further than that. You see, a Christian view of handling wealth isn't only about being ethical. It's also about entering into the fray on behalf of the poor, on behalf of the weak, and standing with them, choosing to see them in their need and to to respond. Jesus is teaching us here that our wealth is better invested in meeting human needs than it is in our own comforts. He's teaching us that our wealth is better spent on people than it is on our own comforts. Now, Jesus' teaching on money is deeply challenging because we live in a culture where it is perfectly fine and perfectly normal to take all your money, all your disposable income, and self-direct it, right? Make yourself happier. Make yourself more comfortable. Reduce your pain. Increase your joy. But Jesus calls us to live differently in light of the kingdom, in light of the good news. You see, as Christians, we are to exploit money for the benefit of people, not to exploit people to gain money. We are to exploit money for the benefit of people, not to exploit people to gain money. And our wealth, if we can even call it our wealth, has been entrusted to us for the glory of God and the rescue of people. Is this countercultural? Yes. Is this a hard word to hear? Yes. Is it good for us and is it what we need to hear? Absolutely. Now, Let's consider an action that that we need to put this into practice, a practical action step for you to take in your life. Now, the action that the text provides might actually surprise you. It's not a list of recommended charities that you can give to. It's not a giving plan to start to dispense and get rid of all your wealth. The action that comes through in this text is this. Listen. Listen to God's word. This is what Abraham says needs to happen. Look at verse 27. As death so radically changes the rich man's perspective on life, and now that it's too late to change, he he knows he, he, he lived the wrong way. He knows he didn't trust God. He knows his error. And what does he want? He wants his family to be warned. He begs Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his family. And what does Abraham say to him? Verses 29. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They have God's word. Let them listen to them. And that let them listen is stronger than just like let them. It's actually a command. It's an imperative. He's saying they need to hear God's word and obey it. See, the point here is that in life, the rich man didn't listen to God's word. He called Abraham his father, as in he was part of God's people. He thought he was just in because of his ethnic identity. But if he had listened to God, he wouldn't have put his trust in money. And the point is, it's too late for him. 
But Abraham says that's what needs to happen in life. We need to listen to the word of God. And, and check out what the rich man says in verse 30. This, this is astounding. He says, no, Father Abraham. He has the stones to tell Abraham, the father of his faith, that he's wrong while being in torment? I mean, wow. He says, no, Abraham, they don't need God's word. They need something more. They need something spectacular. They need something unmistakable. Look at what he says. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He says God's word is not enough. God's word is can't, can't, his word can't lead us into life. It's not powerful enough. We need something spectacular. And how often do we believe that? Do we underestimate what the word of God is able to accomplish in our lives and in our world? Do we seek God's word for the treasure of immeasurable value that it is? Do we know that the word of God has power to bring dead things to life? Ezekiel climbs a ridge and, and sees before him a valley of dry bones. And the Lord says to him, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And the bones start to be built up and sinews attach themselves and they become living people once again. God's word is living and active. It is powerful to bring dead things to life. It is not just prescriptive. In other words, the Bible isn't just full of a list of do's and don'ts, but God's word is performative. It accomplishes that which it speaks in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so rightly so, Abraham doesn't budge he says, no, they don't need to hear Moses and the prophets. They need someone risen from the dead. And Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Listen, that's the action that's coming to us in this parable. And it's the thing that the Pharisees were not doing. Remember, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and they were supposed to be listening to God and really following the law and the prophets. And Jesus says earlier in our text, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John and now he says the gospel, the good news is being proclaimed. In other words, he's here. He's announcing the fulfillment of God's rescue plan for the world. It's good news. And here you are rejecting me. The word made flesh stands before them. And what do they do? Verse 14, they sneer at him. They think his view on money is simplistic and foolish. They justify themselves. They value things that God detests. They're failing to listen and this text reminds us of something very important about God. It has something to teach us about God. It's that our God is a God who has spoken and who speaks. He doesn't leave us guessing. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't leave us directionless and rudderless. He spoke and the universe came into being. 
He spoke the law through Moses. He spoke through the prophets to call his people back to himself. And he has spoken ultimately and finally in his son, Jesus Christ, who fulfills all those previous words. And he speaks to us in the written witness of the scriptures and the inner witness of the Holy Spirit as we read about Jesus all through these pages. And we learn about his kingdom and his good news guess what? People of God, we can listen because God has spoken. We can listen because God has spoken and he continues to announce the gospel and speak to people's hearts, convicting them of sin, quickening them to his word. And we need to listen because it is God who is speaking. He's not a spiritual fortune cookie giving you optional suggestions for your life. He's the cosmic king telling you how life works, telling you and showing you the way into life. We need to listen because it is God who is speaking. Do we have ears to hear? Do we listen? Are we listening to God? Here's what God's word has spoken all along. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Deuteronomy 15.7 and 8, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O mortal what is good and what does the lord require of you but to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god god's showing us the way to life in his words will we listen to him that's the word that comes to us this morning listen listen and this is about way more than changing how we view money and how we handle our money. It's about our entire lives being transformed by the grace of God. It's about us becoming new people. The gospel isn't good advice. The gospel is good news that completely changes and restores us. And we need to listen and live in line with the gospel. And that's actually where we're going to get the power to do this. Where are we going to get the power to live in the way that Jesus wants us to live? We need the power of the gospel. You see, the power of money is so seductive in the world and in our lives because it plays to some of our deepest desires as humans, our desires for meaning and purpose, the desire for security and comfort and the desire to, for flourishing and joy. I mean, who doesn't want those things? Those are so deeply rooted in our hearts. And these are good and God-given desires. They're part of what he made us for. But we turn to money to fill the gap. We turn to money to be our security and our help. We turn to the comforts that money can give us to, to make us feel like we're okay. And so we join the world on the track of stockpiling wealth, of pushing others down to get a leg up and building little kingdoms for ourselves that aren't going to last. I mean, where was the rich man's kingdom when he died? It was gone. 
And here's the power of the gospel of Jesus, that in Jesus you get reconnected with the eternal purpose for which you were made, the kingdom of God. You get to be part of something infinitely greater than yourself, something worth dying for. You find your part in the whole scheme of history in Christ. And in Jesus you receive an identity and an eternal security that isn't anchored in your power or in your performance or in your morality. It's anchored in the faithfulness of God and in the event of the cross. The event of the cross. Think about the cross. That's what the king of the universe did for you. He went to the cross 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet became poor for your sake, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's how God handled his wealth and his power. He spent it on us. Not because we're great or we deserved it, but because he is great and he has so loved us. His love is always prior. His grace is always outrunning our mistakes. He left his high position to become poor, even dying that disgraceful death on a cross with nothing left to him and no one standing next to him. Why? To make us rich. Not in the sense of your life is going to be great now and following Jesus is going to be really easy and he's going to give you everything you ask for in terms of material wealth. No, not at all. He has made us rich in that he has brought us into the family of God and we are inheritors with him in the kingdom. He is giving us all the meaning and security we could have never found on our own. He's given us eternal life. So whether you are rich or poor, you can radiate with the presence and joy and love of God. That's what he's done for us. And we need to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus giving everything for us that will then turn us to respond to him by listening to him, by obeying him with this gratitude and joyful response of love back to him. People of God, even if you're not part of the people of God. If, if you're not a believer today, you don't follow Jesus, you're just checking this out. My prayer for you is that you would come to listen to God's word. That you would see Jesus who became poor that we might be made rich. I mean, he's the one who's standing before us this morning inviting us to consider eternity and live accordingly. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.